Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Hallie Kasser Jane Show Talk Radio for Fine Minds airs Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern, and is always available for your listening pleasure at HallieKasserJane.com. Thank you so much for being here. I am Hallie Kesser-Jane. Today on the Hallie Kesser-Jane Show, a look at the astonishing life and career of fashion and cultural tour de force, Coco Chanel, and a look at occupied Paris at the height of World War II. Joining me at my table is Rhonda K. Gerlich, author of a sensational new biography of Chanel, Mademoiselle, Coco Chanel, and the Pulse of History, and architect by profession, author of The Paris Architect, Charles Belfour. But before we begin, a brief message from our sponsors. You are listening to the Helicaster Chain Show. The Helicaster Chain Show is always available online at com and a host of venues, including Blog Talk Radio. Be sure to visit us at our newest home on iHeartRadio. Today, the Helicaster Chain Show is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. With over 150,000 titles in virtually every genre, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audibletrial.com forward slash the Hallie Kasser Jane Show. Is someone you love living with frequent pain? Are they spending more time just sitting in a chair or lying in bed or going to the ER more often? Other than taking them to the doctor, you may not know what else to do. Treasure Coast Hospice can help in more ways than you may realize. Even if you don't think your loved one is ready for hospice care, their experts can evaluate your loved one's condition and direct you to the right resources in our community. Call Treasure Coast Hospice to learn more or visit tchospice.org. Hello, I'm Hallie Kesser-Jane, host of the Hallie Kesser-Jane Show. Join me Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern when I talk with the great artists, writers, musicians, politicians, and celebrities of our day. The Hallie Kesser-Jane Show is talk radio for fine minds. Tune in live. Or listen to the podcast at HallieKesserJane.com. Certain lives are at once so exceptional and yet so in step with their historical moments that they illuminate cultural forces far beyond the scope of a single person. 
Such is the case with Coco Chanel, whose life offers one of the most fascinating tales of the 20th century, throwing into dramatic relief an era of war, fashion, ardent nationalism, and earth-shaking change. The subject of author Rhonda K. Gerlich's new biography of Chanel, rated the top biography for Christmas 2014 by the Wall Street Journal, Mademoiselle Coco Chanel, and The Pulse of History, a brilliant work that for the first time, with wide-ranging and incisive historical scrutiny, unravels the mysteries of the poor orphan girl who became a global icon of both luxury and everyday style. Rhonda K. Gerlich writes on fashion, performance, art, and cultural politics. She's the author of numerous books, and her work has also appeared in the New York Times, New York Newsday, International Herald Tribune, the Los Angeles Times, the Sydney Morning Herald, as well as in several journals and museum catalogs in the United States and Europe. She's a Guggenheim Fellow and has also received awards from the Getty Research Institute and more. Gerlich received her B.A. and Ph.D. in comparative literature and French from Yale University. Let's talk. So there have certainly been a number of biographies as well as film biops that have explored the life of Coco Chanel. So I first wanted to ask you what you thought was missing from all of them. What sent Rhonda Gerlich on the journey to uncover the story of Mademoiselle Coco what Chanel? This journey is that I don't think any other biography had considered that Chanel was much more than a fashion designer, but something of a world historical and political force and with an influence on a globe's worth of women for over a century. No one had explained how such influence was even possible, and it's far beyond her talent as a designer. I have to say, starting just with your research, the back of this book is like 300 pages of all your notes. I was like, whoa. I mean, five countries? Exhaustive probing. I mean, how fascinating. Talk to me about that and the surprising discoveries you might have uncovered. That was the joy of writing such a book. To begin with, you know, I'm trained as a scholar. I'm a university professor, and so I know how to do extensive research. And this was a a passion project of mine. And I decided I was going to not just restrict myself to fashion research or research of Chanel alone, but of the entire uh, global context of her work, which meant going to... London's Imperial Museum, unlocking Romanov diaries that had never been read at Harvard's Houghton Museum and having them translated from the Russian. It meant traveling to a medieval village in Spain where I talked to people who had known a lover of hers and finding correspondence of hers at the Cambridge Archives in England. It took me to the Chanel archives as well, where almost no one is allowed to go. And I commuted back and forth for a number of years to their private and excellently kept archives. How long did this whole project take you? You told me off air. What, tell, tell the audience. Uh, it took me over six years total to write the book. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So let's just start with, before we get into to the to the future of it, let's get started from the beginning. Talk a little bit for those who don't know about her beginnings. What was her early life like? Chanel comes from the most abject poverty that one could imagine. She was born in remote rural France, and she was orphaned very young. Her father was a peddler. Her mother died of advanced bronchitis probably when she was 12. And when her mother died, quite tragically, her father deposited her and her two sisters 
in a convent orphanage and abandoned them, as well as her brothers who had even worse fates, for the rest of the children's lives they never saw their father again and they were left to their own devices. Growing up in a convent, how did that, how did that affect her? Well, I think it's very fascinating. It was, of course, a lonely and very somber childhood. She spoke often of having been very unhappy as a child, although she tried to cover over the fact that she had been in an orphanage. But on the other hand, Hallie, there was something very interesting about her being raised by nuns in rural France at that time, because in fact, the women in her family had all been exhausted, sick, and many, many died well, well before their time because of the demands of poverty and family life. But the nuns were well taken care of. They were educated. They were their own bosses. They ran a convent and ran social projects. And frankly, it seems to me that those were the first career women that the young Gabrielle Chanel ever encountered. And I think that had a profound influence on her idea of what she might do in the future. So she's 18 years old. She's emancipated from their care and off she goes. What What's the beginning for her like as she sets out on her own? Well, she and her very young aunt, she had an aunt who was the same age as she, Adrienne, they got a first job out of their convent as seamstresses. Unsurprisingly, that was one of the skills the nuns had taught them and they sewed uniforms for officers in a garrison town in France. And she was working sewing buttons and seams for young men in Moulins, France, where she was eventually noticed by some of the young officers. And that was the beginning of a real turn in her life. Now, she comes out of all of this with a joie de vivre, ambition, clearly. Yes. Right? And that's how she began in her early, she, in her early 20s, I guess, going after the world. She wanted it, didn't she? She wanted it all. She was very hungry, Hallie, and I think that's what saved her life. Quite tragically, her two sisters who had been in the orphanage with her both committed suicide for various reasons. Her brothers were destitute and peasants all their lives. But Chanel writes of having understood as a girl that she needed liberty and that she could attain it only through having money. And she also was a creative visionary. And all of these things together, along with an incredible talent for observing society and figuring out how she might fit in, even though she had no education and no family background. Yes, she was ferocious. I like that word, ferocious. I think that's the perfect word from what you wrote. The name Coco, where did it originate? Well, Coco came to her as a kind of accident. She started, after her seamstress career, she began experimenting with being a cafe singer. She wanted to be on stage. She was very theatrical. And she sang, apparently, two songs that were famous ditties at the time. One was called, Who Has Seen Coco in the Trocadero? And another was about a rooster and the crow of the rooster, which is Coco Rico in French, unlike our own cockadoodle do and the soldier <laughs> in the audience kept saying hey coco coco for the girl who sang these little songs and chanel was not so um, stupid to let that go by her because it was a brilliant nickname and i might add that a cocotte at the time was the word for a kind of well let's call it a courtesan and so it fit her in various ways now something that does interest me about her and that is she grows up in this convent and okay she holds on to her joie de vivre she holds on to her her ambition and, and cultivates it and does all of that and that's really terrific but she also was a woman who crossed moral lines very early at a time when people didn't. Where'd that come from? Well, um, there are many ways she did that. You may be referring to her early, likely dabbling in prostitution and then some more high-level things she did politically later. 
I think what happens to people who are so badly damaged at a young age is that the consequences of these kinds of transgressions don't seem so grave to them because the worst has already happened. She saw her entire world disappear before her eyes when she was a child, mother dead in front of her, and about two days later her father gone forever and herself locked in a prison essentially. I think she felt any means to justify her own ends, and she became, instead of immoral, I would say she was amoral. Okay, that's better word probably you're right absolutely I enjoy that word and I think that that fits you know I'm fascinated by her for as so many are I, I think at the root of everything though father abandons her and then men in her life whoa mm. right yes I, we have to address that because I think that is so from reading your book so essential as to to how things occurred how they played and how she manifested the early pain in her later life Let's talk about one of those people right now, and that's Boy Capel, as it has pronounced. Yes, yes. Who shaped her, for sure, and her empire. Talk to me about him. Yes. Arthur Boy Capel was a British upper-class man she met in her late 20s who had every advantage. He was perfectly bilingual. He was half French, half English. He was the son of someone who made a fortune in the coal industry and had a very beautiful socialite mother. And he fell in love with Coco in a way that no other man ever did or could, and they could see each other. And quite exceptionally, Boy Capel helped her found her empire by teaching her the business secrets he knew from childhood and by teaching her about philosophy and poetry and literature and world history, religion. That was a kind of tutelage that a girl like that could never have expected. And she was quite passionately in love with him, but he could not marry her. He did not marry her. He wound up marrying a woman of his own social class, although they kept an affair ongoing for a while after that. And then, as I described in my book, quite tragically, Boy Capel was killed in a car crash. And with that, I think, went the last vestige of connectability for Chanel. She lost whatever remaining faith she had in the human race after that tragedy. Hmm. And she turned quite brittle slowly over time. So let's address fashion, because we all know the, the look, the little black dress, the pearls, the jersey fabric, the pants, the comfort, the ease. But there were so many other ways in which she changed things for women that we don't readily attribute to her. I'll give you one, and then you can play with some of the others. And allowing women to sunbathe, get a tan. That was something that women didn't do. They walked around looking like they died 40 years ago. Exactly. Chanel was a a natural athlete, Hallie. She loved going into the sea. She loved horseback riding. She loved hiking and long walks. She was very aware that keeping one's figure and keeping energetic and fit was the secret to being youthful. And she was the first person to go out in the sun and let her skin tan. And she was olive skin. She had a, a beautiful, easy, quick tan. And all of a sudden, all the women who had parasols and thought that a tan was a humiliating sign of having been a, a peasant changed their minds and went out to sunbathe. But I will add that one later in her life, she was taught that the sun could damage one's skin. She began having her chemists manufacture sunscreen for women. I love this woman. I love everything about her. Is there nothing you don't love? Uh, she also cut her hair before other women were wearing short hair. She made eyeglasses okay. Yes, Yes, indeed. Um, This is another way that Chanel sort of teaches us all to turn our flaws into assets. And it was her kind of philosophy of inversion, if you will. She wanted to be tan because it suited her athleticism. Then she would simply invert the norm. She had terrible vision, and I mean terrible. I've tried on her own personal pair of eyeglasses in her apartment with the uh, indulgence of the house of Chanel. (laughs) 
And I can tell you, I'm myopic, but she was probably legally blind. You could barely, her, her vision was terrible. But she had no correction until Boy Capel again took her to an eye doctor and encouraged her to wear her eyeglasses, which she then realized could be a beautiful fashion accessory. And soon, eyeglasses were chic, and they still are. Amazing. She knew everyone. She knew everyone who wasn't anyone. Besides style, or maybe it was the style that did it for her, that was what I was thinking, how did she manage to wend her way, this waif-like creature, if you will, you know, and I put that in quotes, into the circles of the rich and famous and infamous of the time? I mean, did she like collecting famous people, or did she simply find people fascinating? Was she willing to try anything and everyone to satisfy that early abandonment, which we'll talk again about a little bit later? Or was it just ambition? You are listening to the Hallie Kesser Jane Show and my conversation with the author of Mademoiselle, Coco Chanel, and the Pulse of History, Rhonda K. Garlick. Visit us online at HallieCasserJane.com. Well, I think the answer is a complicated uh, braiding of all of the things you just mentioned. It began with her understanding that wealthy and powerful people could help her sell her clothes. Very simply, she invented a kind of word-of-mouth advertising before anyone knew what that was. She found beautiful society women and said, here, I'm giving you my clothes for free. Just wear them to parties. And they would wear them, and people would say, that's gorgeous. Where did you get it? And then her name would be bandied around. And slowly, it became acceptable to know one's dressmaker, which, of course, up until Chanel was unheard of. People didn't socialize with mere dressmakers. But then, quite a bit more important than that, I think, is that she found herself among the modernist artists of Europe. And that was not just for social climbing reasons. There I have to give her credit. She was truly an artist. And people like Picasso, Diaghilev, Misha Serre, Stravinsky, the list goes on and on. They recognized in her a kindred spirit. And because artists are always less concerned about social class than other people, they didn't mind welcoming into their circle a girl with no background. And she wound up collaborating with a lot of these artists on major productions that she costumed. She couldn't draw, by the way, could she? No, Hal. <laughs> I mean, that's the most amazing part of this whole story, if you ask me, from an artist's point of view. That's correct. Chanel had no real couturier training. She could sew, but she could not draw a pattern, and she couldn't do the complicated stitching that couture requires. She would mold dresses and outfits on models, live models, using fabric. She was more of a sculptor or of an, an artisan than she was a traditional fashion designer. Unreal. Now, here's where your book is different from every other book that I've read about Coco Chanel and why I love your book so much. Because you do put this woman in step with the historical time that she came from. And I think that really explains her in a depth that we probably never would have understood prior to that. But let's look at World War I and Chanel. And, and, and let's talk about her and politics and World War I and diplomacy. It's a lot to bring throw at you, but I want to get that in here because I think it's so essential to her story. Yes, thank you. Uh, that's actually a big part of the story that I don't think has been addressed. To begin with, she spent World War One in Deauville, where Boy Capel brought her to protect her from the front. And it was there that she began making her jersey costumes, her jersey ensembles. And jersey was a cheap fabric that had been used for men's underwear. There weren't a lot of materials available. And at that very time, women were starting to work in 
a way they hadn't before World War I. They were doing jobs that men had done before, and simple, easy, lightweight outfits were crucial to these women. And there was Chanel providing exactly such outfits at a time when they were needed. She saw the need, she understood the relationship between what was going on in the world politically and what material culture, what women's clothes needed to do to respond. It was also a time because women were entering the workplace when a lot of the restrictions on women's freedoms were falling away. Women were suddenly going out. I'm talking about upper class women, of course. Mm -hmm. They were going out alone in public. They were working. They were doing exercise. They were replacing men in jobs. And they didn't care as much for the old decorum. And that allowed Chanel more social mobility. But she also responded with outfits that corresponded to a less constrictive view of women's uh, existence. Unreal. Unreal. Because I think anybody who can sit in the midst of what is going on and somehow come up with that little key, right, about women and women changing lives and say, ah, there it is. There is that little niche that I can find a place for myself in. Can you imagine what her mind was like? Could you imagine being inside her head? I feel as though I, I came as close as I could. I tried often to think about how she thought. And I think it's the genius of an observer, somebody who spent many years forcibly retired from the world as a child and just bided her time watching, watching, thinking. Sensitive beyond all imagination. Yes. Back to the men in her life. Okay. There were many. Yes. There were some really extraordinary ones. <laughs> you want to talk about that? Sure. It's hard to know where to begin. After <laughs> the death of her beloved Capel, Chanel kind of plunged into a life of quite wild and exciting. Exciting dating, it's true. She dated a Romanov duke, Grand Duke Dmitry Romanov, who had been a direct descendant of the Tsars and was the nephew of the last Tsar of Russia. And he was in exile in Paris at the time. He was also one of the two murderers of Rasputin and so had a quite nefarious past, but he opened to her imagination the beauty and the wonders of the Romanov dynasty. I'm talking about jewels and fabric and luxury beyond compare, but at the same time, he was in exile and hoping to return to a restored monarchy after the Bolshevik Revolution, and it turns out, according to correspondence Eye on Earth, Chanel thought she might marry this duke and then become the Empress of Russia. <laughs> Love it. That didn't work out, obviously. She dated the wealthiest man in Europe, the Duke of Westminster, for many years, who introduced her to international royal society, who was himself politically rather suspect, actually, who took her fishing, hunting, gave her her own textile mill to make Scottish tweeds, and there we see the influence of his world on the clothes that we still enjoy today of Chanel's, those famous tweed suits. Here's the thing that's fascinating to me. Many things, of course, are in terms of her, but I want to get back to this abandonment issue because the men that she chose to involve herself with were never men who could really give her themselves. No. So, you know, it's interesting that as a child, it's the abandonment thing, and of all the things that she accomplished in her life, that she couldn't throw away. She was still hammered by her father abandonment and, you know, and by no fault of her own, her mother's as well. She couldn't overcome that, could she? I, I don't think so, Hallie. It was the single biggest tragedy of her life, but I think it was combined also with the fact that she was so unusual in being a peasant, actually literally of the peasant class who then rose to the highest realm of society in Europe at the time. There were really no men, virtually. I can't imagine a man who would have married her in her day, even though she had befriended so many people of the highest society. While she was still a young woman, she could become lovers with these men. And yes, I agree absolutely, the psychological effect of her father's abandonment was being replayed over and over again. 
and that's clear. But also, the social class structure of France had not changed enough for men of rank, privilege, and aristocracy to seriously consider marrying a peasant, even if she was the famous Coco Chanel. It, it was a, a double whammy. And she must have known that, no? She did know that. And she spoke often of the difficulty in having no provenance, if you will, of having no lineage in France. She said that she thought foreigners were welcomed in France more easily than French people who did not have family background. Hmm, fascinating. What was it about her, seriously, <laughs> that so enamored people of her? What is it nameable? I've thought a lot about that. I think Chanel was a genius at emulation. And when I say emulation, I mean that she could play both sides of the drama of emulation, which involves copying someone and creating something that other people desperately want to copy themselves. It's a theatrical game. It's part charisma, part savvy, and then a kind of X factor that, yes, maybe we cannot name. But I think she drew people to her by knowing how to mirror them in a way and then somehow altering whatever it was she was mirroring to make them suddenly want to be like her. And she did it over and over and over again. She had a vampire-like quality, really. Oh, that's an interesting choice of words, my friend. My goodness, vampire. Let's talk Chanel and anti-Semitism and Nazism and fascism. And you were warned about looking into the politics of Chanel, weren't you? Multiple times, yes. And I like a girl who says, <laughs> too bad. I'm going there. You went there. Talk to me. I had to go there, Hallie, for many reasons. We do know from research that had been done before me that Chanel got involved in a kind of abortive espionage mission for the Nazis during World War II, and that she had a lover who was a high-ranking Nazi officer. Those things are indisputable. We also knew for a long time that she had been called to account by the so-called purgation committees of France, but she was released. What interested me even being Beyond that, though, is her larger relationship to fascism, anti-Semitism, and Germany. I think that her fashion itself, the movement that so entrances us still, that uniform, that mass replicability, owes a great deal to the appeal of fascism at the time. So I think that the politics she was drawn to, which, by the way, have to do with wanting to be in the in crowd, the powerful crowd, the elite, and even the maybe the little a little bit of brutality, also have to be taken into account when we look at the fashions that lingered on. And I also uncovered new research that suggests, honestly, that even as early as World War One, she may have been working for the Germans then, too. Really? Yeah. There was a police file on her that says expressly that. Let me throw this out at you, because this is a thought that I had. See what you have to say about it. And that is, one of the things that I also see in her life from reading, particularly your book, is that she seemed to embrace the things that she feared, rather <laughs> than run from them. Uh, that's a brilliant observation. I hadn't put it to myself that way, but I think that's correct. I and I can, as soon as you say that, I see that I, I agree with you. For example, she did not know how to swim, but she learned that Aristide loved boating. And so she forced herself to be a good sailor. She thought oysters were disgusting and forced herself to eat them. These are minor examples because she learned that that's what the upper class did. And on a much more serious scale, I think she figured out that in order to overcome her background, she would have to plunge into every unknown, every danger. And she trusted herself because she was strong enough to have survived that childhood. I think it gave her trust in her own capacities, but that did not 
make her happy necessarily. She was wildly successful, but actually never happy. I want to talk to you about that in a little bit, but let's go on just and get a couple of other things that I think are, are relevant to this conversation. The book is filled with Chanel quotes. Hers? A lot of people say that it was a publicist dream uh, who came up with these quotes that she bantered around so much. How much of her is contrived versus how much is the true Chanel? Oh, well, she was a publicist dream in a way, but she was her own publicist. There has never been a publicist as ingenious as Coco Chanel. So all the quotations in my book are quite genuinely her own. Whether they accurately represent her life is another matter. She was a spin artist before we had such a term. (laughs) And she was a a brilliant woman who was quite snappy with a a line, according to everyone who knew her. She could throw back a, a retort very quickly. Her description of her life, her autobiographical remarks were never to be taken literally. Control. Pretty controlling lady, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Don't you like understatement? Is that understatement on my part? (laughs) Big understatement. She was a control maniac. But, you know, again, you can understand how a girl who had no control over her life, who was lived in a a routinized, extremely oppressive uh, childhood home, would seek to reverse that situation as soon as she could. She was summoned to Hollywood. She went. Not such a great marriage there, huh? No, that's a, a very interesting story because, of course, America would later provide her with great success. But in the 1930s, Samuel Goldwyn invited her to MGM to do costumes for a number of films, which she did. And they are very attractive costumes, but they look exactly like her regular clothes. And that was not what they wanted in Hollywood at the time. If you have seen any 1930s movies, you know that women wore marabou stoles and white satin gowns while sipping coffee in the kitchen in every scene. It was an extravagant time. It was an attempt to offset the depression. And Chanel's muted, elegant clothes were not a hit in Hollywood. And she left. And she was equally disgruntled with Hollywood. She thought it was a ridiculous place at the time. Her influence extends beyond the long life of her company. And as you say in the book, I'm going to quote, she's been woven deeply into global consciousness. Her name remains as recognizable today as it was a century ago. Why? Yes, I think the reason is that Chanel tapped into something that's much deeper than a fashion longing. I think Chanel hit women where they Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live. She understood deeply what it means to want to fit in, Hallie, and fit in in every sense, not just fashionably, but socially, psychologically, erotically. And she invented a look and a lifestyle that goes along with the look, a kind of theatrical role for women that was universally delicious. And we will never get over the desire to fit in and also blend in and be appropriate. Every woman who's had to wonder what to wear to a cocktail party and come up with a little black dress or what to wear to that business meeting and worn a little business suit has channeled the spirit of Coco Chanel. By 30, she was a household name in France. By age 40, she had become a multimillionaire and a household name. Mm -hmm. Let's get to the bottom line. Was she a happy camper? 
Was she ever a happy woman? And is there any truth to the drug stories that abound around her? I, I think, sadly, the answer is no. Chanel was never a happy woman. I think she had moments of happiness briefly in her early 30s when she was in love with Boy Capel. I think she took pleasure in her success, but no. She herself said she was profoundly unhappy. And unfortunately, it does seem as though from around the age of 52 or so to the end of her life, she had some kind of addiction to an opium-derived sleep medication called Sedol, perhaps more extensive even than just that medication. But yeah, there there seems to be reason to believe she had a morphine-related drug addiction, but she was highly functional nonetheless. I love the fact that you so well described the seductive nature of her, even in death. <laughs> I love that part. I just love it. How other biographers have been seduced by her, and you were honest to say that you too had to fight succumbing to her influence, even in death. So what does that say about the power of this woman? Well, I think it's about a power she harnessed that was bigger than herself. And I, I do say honestly early on in the book that any one of us women who've been raised reading fashion magazines cannot help feeling seduced. When I was invited to meet with Chanel executives and I got to walk up those stairs, the famous carpeted spiral staircase at the house of Chanel and sat on the couch, I was thrilled like a teenager. And even now when I tell people I've written a book on Chanel, there's a little excited feeling about the name. I think it's because it's more about longings within us. It's She just came along at a historical moment when I, I like to say the granite pillars of society were just beginning to loosen up a little bit and she squeezed through and created a new way of being for women of the industrialized world. And we associate it all with her, although it was bigger than she was. She just was a kind of medium, a kind of almost mystical channeler of it. And that's why it still holds today. What about regrets? Do you think she had regrets or do you think, uh, do you think she'd died feeling that she'd accomplished something? Was she satisfied with her life? What? She would tell younger women friends all the time that her great regret was that she had not married or had children. On the other hand, there is good reason to believe she did in fact have children, or at least one child. The nephew she raised as her son may well have been her own biological son that I discuss in the book. I think she was extremely proud of her accomplishments, and in her later life she would frequently say, look, everyone knows me. The world knows me. The world dresses as I dress them. I think that did bring her satisfaction, and she definitely knew her importance, but that did not translate into happiness, sadly. Hmm. Your editor, after having read an early version of Mademoiselle, said to you, Coco is the hole in the center of her own story. And you agreed. I think you're explaining what you both meant by that revelation will explain to us the magic that was Coco Chanel, as well as the enchantment that is so much a part of her legacy. Talk to me about that statement. Fascinating statement. You mean about her being the hole in her own story? Yeah. Yes. Chanel covered her tracks constantly, like a fearful animal might. She asked her correspondents to burn her letters. There is reason to believe that she paid certain people to destroy birth records, the records of her convent years. It's very likely she bribed or paid people to destroy any correspondence. She lied constantly about her early years and indeed about her entire life and she told constantly changing fictions about what she had been doing. And so to try to reconstruct a biography of Coco Chanel is essentially to run after a missing person, to try to draw a blank, literally, to draw a blank space. And my editor saw that in an early version of the book 
and, and asked me to address it. And she couldn't tell me how. She even said, I can't tell you what to do. And what I realized I had to do was make that the story. The biography of Coco Chanel is the biography of how this blank space was constructed. Because in the end, I realized it is the blank space that Chanel created to allow all of us to insert our own face into. That was the appeal. She entered into a kind of dialogue with all of us, leaving space for our own identity in her iconic persona that was for sale for the whole globe. So at the end of the day, did she measure up to your expectations? Oh, goodness. I think she surpassed all my expectations, which doesn't mean that I like her all that much. (laughs) (laughs) You don't? (laughs) Well, I don't think we would have been good friends, but I truly marvel at her, Hallie. I do not know a story of a woman's life that compares to this. I've been speaking with Rhonda K. Gerlich, author of Mademoiselle Coco Chanel and the Pulse of History, by way of Random House, the book fashion icon Diane von Furstenberg, listed as her favorite book of 2014. For more information on Rhonda and her work, visit her website at rondagerlich.com. An architect by profession, Author Charles Belfour has published several architectural histories, one of which won a Graham Foundation grant for architectural research. He graduated from the Pratt Institute and Columbia University, and he taught at Pratt as well as at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. His area of specialty is historic preservation. A freelance writer for the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times, The Paris Architect is his debut novel. The year is 1942. The place? Paris, where gifted architect Lucien Bernard accepts a commission that will bring him a great deal of money, and maybe get him killed. But if he's clever enough, he'll avoid any trouble. All he has to do is design a secret hiding place for a wealthy Jewish man, a space so invisible that even the most determined German officer won't find it. He sorely needs the money, and outwitting the Nazis who have occupied his beloved city is a challenge he can't resist. But when one of his hiding places fails horribly, and the problem of where to hide a Jew becomes terribly personal, Lucien can no longer ignore what's at stake. The Paris architect asks us to consider what we owe each other, and just how far we'll go to make things right. Let's talk. So, Charles, I've got to start with this. What could be more horrible than what happened in World War II? And in world history, not much. And yet we find ourselves desiring to go back to that time. Writing historical novels about the Nazi era has become almost a business. First, as a writer, why the need to go there? Uh, Well, it's still a fascinating time. And um, for me, it was just a, um, a time and place where I could set up an interesting plot. Uh, that revolved around architecture. Okay. Equally, I'm curious what you think readers are so drawn to in the stories about that time. Did you think about that before you wrote the book? Mm, I knew that people, there's really a large World War II uh, readership. People are still fascinated by that time. Um, there's still movies made about it. Um, it seems it's, it's just, um, it just keeps on um, going. Um, but and I thought that that was a um, a, uh, a popular you know period of time that people were interested in. So you didn't have any real what attraction to it, or you did? No, I really didn't. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, you're an architect. Was it the architect who wanted to write a story, or the writer in you who wanted to write the story where your architectural training could come into play? Which which was it? It was the writer part of me. 
Uh-huh. I had written some nonfiction, and I wanted to uh, take a stab at writing fiction. And I knew that I wanted to have architecture as the basis of the plots. That was the, the whole premise. And I just went from there, you know, searching for a, a, a plot idea you know, to spin a story off of. So what was the inspiration for the Paris Architect? I came across a historical item that uh, during the reign of Elizabeth I, these things that were called priest holes were built to uh, hide priests. At that time, Catholicism was uh, banned and priests weren't allowed to say mass. And so um, if the Queen's soldiers came to raid the house uh, where they were staying, um, they could just hide in these temporary hiding places. So they left, and so I just transposed the idea to World War II, Paris. Your family, your mom was in Paris during the war or in Europe during the war? Talk to me about that. She was in Europe during the war, and uh, she was in Poland, and um, she was just a teenager, and then she had um, been put into a a labor camp, like a factory, to work for the Germans. Why why her? they just would randomly, you know, pick people, you know, force people to go into these these factories. They need the Germans needed lots of people to um, produce uh, material for the war. And she wasn't so, Jewish, right? No, she wasn't Jewish. Right, and I think that's important because I think everybody seems to think it was only the Jews who were under the thumb of these people, and certainly mostly Jews were, but there were others as well who wound up getting mm-hmm. caught up in the, in, in, the, in the grossness of, of the situation. The story takes place in occupied Paris in 1942. Paris. I love Paris. I assume you've been to Paris, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. I wasn't there while I was writing the book, though. Lots of people ask me that, So, um, but I'd been there before. It's an architect's dream, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah, if it's... I think it's the most beautiful city in the world. And Washington, D.C. isn't bad. Didn't the same architect have something to do with both cities? But it's got to be a dream as a writer who is also an architect. I don't know what kind of architect you are. I'll ask you that. To, to have that as a character almost in this, in this novel, was that just a lot of fun? Yeah, I enjoyed um, the particular section of Paris that I, I based the book on and you know going up the boulevards and looking at the architecture um you know all the apartment blocks and the way the the city was planned it's it's it is the most beautiful city in the world. What kind of architectural design do you do? I specialize in historic preservation, so I work on these old buildings like old factories or old firehouses and you know recycle them into new uses that type of thing. Oh, I love that. So I yeah. either work as an architect or as a historic preservation consultant. Uh-huh. Okay. So that certainly was something that you could apply to this wonderful little book that you've written. Important to your story are the occupied. How they behaved as they watched the horrors that the Nazis were perpetrating on the Jews and others. Your thoughts? Uh, I had um, done lots of research on everyday life during uh, the occupation in Paris, and I wanted to get those details into the book about people were continually hungry because there just wasn't enough food, and people were always scared because they could just disappear one day or someone in their family could just disappear. And so it was hunger and fear that pervaded their lives during that period. In all that research that you did, was there anything that you found that you hadn't known that you found utterly shocking? Um, one thing is that if if a spouse, a Gentile spouse, was married and had a um, a Jewish you know wife or husband, um, 
lots of times they would abandon them because they were going to lose their job or they felt that they were going to face a hardship. Hmm. Um, and they would just walk away from the spouse. That was probably the most you know, shocking thing. Wow. I sometimes think that anti-Semitism has become almost genetic. <laughs> it's like it's, it's, the genes have been altered by the years of the scourge being passed down through families. You were listening to the Hallie Kesser Chain Show and my conversation with the author of The Paris Architect, Charles Belfort. Visit us online at HallieKesserChain.com. Let's talk about your main character, Lucien, as the novel begins. Um, you know, he's, his personality is basically an indifferent person, a self-centered person, and also explained in the book, you know, France was an anti-Semitic country, and this kind of anti-Semitism was just passed down you know, from generation to generation. It's a Catholic country, a Christian country, so um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism that, you know, just uh, continued to persist generation after generation. So, you know, he was uh, a product of that. Okay, so he was an architect. He's your architect. Talk to me about the main part of the story and him and what, what happens. Well, you know, during the war, there was absolutely no work, and he gets a phone call from a wealthy man, and uh, he goes to this apartment, and he thinks he's going to get a job to remodel the apartment, but then he finds out when the um, industrialist offers him money to you know, design a hiding place for a Jew. And first he doesn't want to do it because he can die you know, helping Jews, and uh, then he thinks about it, and then he needs the money because he's offered a lot of money, and also there's the challenge in it you know, and outwitting the Germans. And so those two, those two factors, you know, persuade him to um, design his first hiding place for a Jew. Did you like him as a character? Um, in the beginning, I didn't. I wanted him to change and discover sort of a sense of humanity about himself and become a better person throughout the, uh, by the end of the novel. But, um, you know, I liked, you know, the, the architectural side of him that he wanted to design. He wanted to design so bad that he would design for the Germans, design factories for them. He was so hungry to show his talent. And so I could understand that part, and, and I could understand his, you know, his love for architecture. Hmm. So they worked on two levels there. There's silence and there's collaboration. Is one any more excusable than the other? Because that does come up in the book. I'm sorry, what? I said there's silence. One can be just yeah. silent and look the other way. And then there's collaboration. And I said, is one more excusable than the other? Um, yeah, people look the other way. You know, they didn't want to know what was going on. Collaboration is a completely different thing. Is when you often receive some reward, um, you, know, you, know, for, you know, for helping the enemy. So at least in the French people's eyes, you know, collaboration was the worst thing that you could do. And if you were caught collaborating, what happened? You know, at the end of the war, lots of people um, either were um, prosecuted for it or um, just simply beaten up, uh, you know, by a mob or something, and you know, hounded out of you know their village or their town. So the collaborationists, you know, paid a price, you know, for their decisions. Fear, suspicion, horror, danger, suspense all ignite in The Paris Architect. So I, I get back to our fascination and joy of reading things about the Nazi era. Um, I, I wonder sometimes if perhaps guilt for what happened to others doesn't play into some of this 
interest in this in this particular period of time that we want to put ourselves through the same fear and compendium of emotions maybe to purge and and maybe to share and i wonder if any of those things crossed your mind in creating these characters or in writing this book for you um no um i had no you know sense of guilt um when I was writing the book at all. No, not just, you, the guilt, your characters. I'm sorry. <laughs> not you, oh, <laughs> the oh, characters. Okay. Uh, the characters? Yeah, putting um, them through. Um, I guess uh, in, in some cases, um, maybe the French, old French priest who hid Jewish children, maybe there was some sense of guilt um, in what he did. And then maybe the Manet, the, um, the, the wealthy industrialist, felt some sort of, sense of guilt over watching what was happening to the Jews in Paris. Um, yeah, that, that probably played into it a bit. Hmm. The opposites in this book are, are, are fascinating. There's the beauty of Paris, and there's the uh, horror that's going on. And it's as if the two worlds were colliding, and they were. And did you think about that, and did you think about how you could convey that, or was that just something that happened, showed up? Well, beauty of Paris, the streets and everything, and then you have like the scenes of torture by the Gestapo, where they do unspeakable things to get people to talk. You know, that that played out in my um, in my mind while I was writing the story, you know, the two contrasts like that, what was going on, you know, sort of behind closed doors and the torture. Hmm. All in all, it's a morality tale. You ask your reader to uh, ask themselves what they will do under the circumstances uh, Lucien finds himself in, and I imagine we would all hope to find our better selves. But we don't always, and right. You no, know, it's it. Yeah, it's easy to think that you would be a hero now and do something like that. But if you were in people's places during the Second World War, you you would be you know scared for your own life and scared for your family's life. So, um, right, you know, in twenty fourteen, it's easy to think that you would help somebody. But if you were placed back in that time period, you might not want to get involved at all. Not having the courage to get involved. Sleeping with the enemy, term, by the way, as your character Adele did. What what were your thoughts on her? And, and there always seems to be this self-motivation, and Lucien, too, involved. Um, Adele, the fashion designer, um, she was based on Coco Chanel, who you know supposedly slept with German officers during the Second World War. And, you know, she, you know, basically thought they would win the war and there wouldn't be any consequences for what she did. But again, it gets into this moral thing and what's right, what's wrong. I have to tell you, sidebar, you did that business about Nazi uniforms, and I found that utterly fascinating, how even that could be turned into something. It, it was just a bizarre thing to describe, you know, the SS officer's uniform and everybody right. else's, right? Could you understand that yeah. that, that kind of like just, it was, I, I wanted to take a bath after that scene. So if you stood up against the Nazis, and you mentioned your, fa- your, your character, Father Jacques, he refused to be intimidated by the Gestapo uh, colonel interrogating him. But why is it always, do you think, in books, in films, in everything that has to do with, that it's always the, it's always the priest <laughs> or somebody, you know, of a spiritual nature who is the one who stands up? Um. Well, his inspiration was um, I discovered that there were lots of French priests in this period who risked their lives hiding Jewish children. That was another big surprise. And so um, that it really interested me. So I decided to create a character, you know, based on that. But um, 
Yeah, it's, you know, I guess it goes with the territory being, you know, a priest or a minister or a rabbi that uh, you have this, you know, different sense of morality and, um, you know, different, you know, sense of courage there. But you're right, in in books and uh, in movies, you know, the the um the religious guy always has the high ground there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure that's always true in life. Here's another question about about that and writing about Nazis. I just finished watching The Winds of War and War and Remembrance and rereading the book, uh, Herman Welk's brilliant historical drama. I don't know if you've ever read it about World War II. Going back and looking at that and rereading that, he's one of the few people that I really saw who who had an interesting take on how he portrayed the Nazis. And and I'm wondering whether you think about or thought about that when you were writing this, because they, they look, we don't know, we weren't there, at, you know, how they were, but, you know, Hitler is always portrayed as this mad, he was mad, but, you know, screaming, ranting lunatic. Nazis always seem to be portrayed, you know, as Achtung and, and tough and whatever. And, and it's almost a character. And yet maybe it's not a caricature. And maybe that's one of the weirdest things about looking back low these many years, you know, later at those. But that's what filmdom has done to them. What do you what are your thoughts, any as a writer on portraying yeah, um, them? Yeah, uh, I kept that in mind when I was writing the book because I wanted sort of a more sympathetic German officer and that's why I created um the character of Herzog, the the the, the German engineer army engineer um i'd come across this fact that this german officer had kept a diary during the war and in it you know he said how humiliated and embarrassed he was the way the germans you know treated the jews rounding them up and uh he was just he was guilt-ridden about that um and very ashamed so i took that that little fact and i i spun a character off on that and i wanted a german who wasn't the, the, the stereotypical, you know, foaming-at-the-mouth monster. Um, I wanted one who was more cultured, um, you know, better educated and, you know, more sympathetic, and I wanted him to form a friendship with Lucien, the architect, uh, you know, to, um, to have sort of a bond you know, during the war there, during their experiences there. But that's a good point, that uh, film always portrays you know, Nazis and the Germans as, um, you know, monsters. And so I wanted to um, to try to avoid that in the book. Yeah, and, 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 you know, they were monsters. There's no question about that. It's the del- A monster, though, can be somebody who is not a screaming lunatic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, mm-hmm. um, regardless of whether somebody is a nice guy or, or, or not a nice guy, you know, in this lady's mind anyway, anybody who stood by and watched for whatever reason, is guilty and is disgusting as far as I'm concerned. But that's, what can I say, that's me. You get to the end of this project of yours, and you've lived with this, these characters, and, and you've lived in this world. I don't know, how long did it take you to write this? Um, I think the first draft was like less than a year, and then you know I just kept working on it over you know a couple more years um, before I um, went out and found a literary agent. Right. So you write the words, the end. How'd you feel? Um, yeah, I wanted, you know, to um, let, you know, the, you know, the architect, um, you know, escape. You know, that was important to me. And, um, 
I had just gotten to that point, and I didn't feel I had to write anymore, and I just wanted to end the story right there. And you were done, so, purged. Yeah, so, yeah, and I didn't uh, you know, have any need later on to like rewrite the ending or add something to the ending there. I wanted to uh, just you know, close it out. I've been speaking with Charles Belfour, architect and author of The Paris Architect, by way of Source Books, a novel rich with an intriguing cast of characters, a literary painting of Paris under the occupation. For more information on his book and the author, visit his website at www.theparisarchitect.com. Before I go, I want to remind everyone that podcasts of current and past shows are always available to listen to free on iTunes under The Hallie Kesser Jane Show. The Hallie Kesser Jane Show was also available for download via Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and a host of other venues. Google The Hallie Kesser Jane Show, and you will find us. Of course, podcasts of our shows, both past and present, are always posted for your listening pleasure at HallieKesserJane.com which I hope you'll visit often for the latest information on our upcoming segments. Oh, and while you're at HallieCasterJane.com, don't forget to visit my blog to read my latest musings. I'll be back next week, same time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for another edition of the Hallie Jane Show, Talk Radio for Fine Minds, brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com forward slash the Hallie Kasser Jane Show. Audible.com features over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Stay in touch, won't you? Remember, that's HallieCasserJane.com. Discover us on Facebook at HallieCasserJane and on Twitter at HallieCJ. I love to hear from you. So, till we meet again, this is Hallie Casser Jane. It's a wrap. Mm-hmm.